Let's pray together. Alleluia. God, we praise and worship you this morning. We praise and worship you as the God who has conquered sin and evil and death in the grave. We praise and worship you as the God who spoke the world into being and who is now speaking again to recreate the world. Bearing witness to that power in the, in the resurrection of your son. O oh Lord, fill our hearts with joy. And we ask now as we open up your word together that you would minister to us. Speak to our hearts. Address us, Lord, from so many different backgrounds and so many different situations in life. Yet all sharing one large context this morning as well. We ask that your word would speak and that it would speak in power by the Holy Spirit. And we ask this in Jesus' name and for his glory. Amen. You can be seated. Hallelujah, Christ is risen. There is so much for us. Yeah, thank you. I didn't expect that. There is so much to celebrate, though, of course, this is an Easter like no other in living memory. The churches, at least largely, are empty. There are a few of us here. The choirs and orchestras are absent or stripped down to their bare minimum, as they are for us this morning. The brunches and Easter eggs with family and friends are canceled. And our world is gripped with fear and anxiety. And no doubt this will progress as it already is into anger and frustration. Death, that worm at the core of human existence that, as William James once remarked, death is staring us in the face. The death toll from the COVID-19 pandemic has just surpassed 100,000 people around the globe. And it's an uncomfortable time for all of us. We're waiting for things to resume, to get back to what they once were. But they haven't yet, and it doesn't look like they will for some time. This pause to our normal life has confined us largely to our homes. And despite the seemingly unending Zoom calls and classes and meetings, we're left more alone right now than we have been in recent memory. Blaise Pascal, the 17th century philosopher and math mathematician, who himself had a life-transforming encounter with Jesus at the age of 31. He died at age 39. He once said this, all of humanity's problems stem from man's inability to sit quietly in a room alone. Pascal knew that we thrive, or at least think that we thrive, on diversions. They keep the lingering questions of our existence at bay. But with the world on pause, with no sports, no live entertainment, no movie theaters, no large gatherings, no going to school or to work, at least for most of us. The diversions are minimized, and those lingering questions have a way of creeping back in. I wonder how you're wrestling with them this morning. And now it's Easter. Perhaps you're joining this service because you're a member of Park Street Church and you serve here and worship here regularly. Perhaps you're with us this morning because this is your annual tradition, is to worship at Park Street on Easter morning. Or perhaps you're joining us because you're hoping to hear something than, other than what you read on Google, Google News every day or maybe even every hour. You're looking for a different word and wondering, perhaps Christianity has something to say in a moment like this. Whatever the reason that you're here, 
Whoever you are, one thing I know for certain about all of us is that we need a word of reassurance, a word of hope, a word of encouragement in this moment. And I want you to know that Easter is up to the task, or really what I should say is that Jesus is up to the task. The Christian gospel, this story of good news, is up to the task that has been dealt it this morning. I want us to hear the words, the last words at the Last Supper of our King and Savior Jesus. After he said these words, he prayed to his Father, and then he went to the cross, the events that we have walked through together over the past few days, and suffered and died. They come from the Gospel of John, chapter 16, verse 33. And they say this, he said this, I have said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have trouble, but take heart, I have overcome the world. In the world you will have trouble, but take heart, I have overcome the world. Just in case you think that this text isn't the right one for today, the, the right one for this Easter, these words, let me convince you by, by citing the verse that takes place right before this, what Jesus says. He says, behold, the hour is coming. Indeed, it has come when, you'll be, when you will be scattered, each to his own home. So if ever there was a text that directly addressed our situation right now, I would submit to you that it's this one, as we find ourselves scattered and confined to our own home. There's so much in verse 33 for us to consider, so much for us here. All of it hinges on the final claim, I have overcome the world. So we're going to start there and then take three steps backwards through this verse. From the exhortation to take heart, to the acknowledgement that our context is trouble, to the invitation to peace. So first, I have overcome the world. These words of Jesus pick up the freight of the larger story that he is inhabiting. And it's a story that unless we've been living in these biblical texts for most of our lives, we, we may not pick up quite well. Certainly not if we're just jumping into an Easter service. All four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, are telling the story of Jesus as the story of Israel's Messiah, as the story of Israel, as the story of God and creation. And because you and I are creatures, we are a part of that story. It's a story that impacts us. Think of these stories in concentric circles, the story of Jesus, of Israel's Messiah, of Israel, and of God and creation. This is the story that Jesus inhabits. The Gospel of John, John is the most explicit in connecting this story to that broader story. He begins this Gospel by hearkening back to the first words of the Bible in the book of Genesis chapter 1, in the beginning. And what John is saying is the story that began long ago when God spoke the world into being. That story is coming to fulfillment in this story, the story about Jesus. It's coming to be made whole. It's coming to its climax. And that larger story was a story in which God would not let sin and evil have the final word in his creation. But he would return one day to defeat his enemies, to liberate his people, and to inaugurate a new creation. That was Israel's great hope, this monotheistic people. They believed in the God who created heaven and earth. And that God would not let creation go to rot through sin and evil and death. But he would intervene one day and act and overcome and set things right and make things new. This hope is throughout all of the pages of the Old Testament, which are the, the preceding chapters to the chapter of John's gospel. It's most sharply focused in Isaiah 40 through 55. So when Jesus says, I have overcome the world, 
He is saying that this great hope of Israel, this great hope is now being fulfilled in me and in what I'm about to do. The victory has been won over the world, the sum total of all powers that are opposing God and his purposes. I have won the victory. I have overcome the world. Of course, this is Easter, and it is the resurrection. This event that we are celebrating and remembering and commemorating on this day, yet we do it every Sunday. It's the resurrection that enables us to see this clearly, that we couldn't see clearly because of the cross. The cross didn't look like a victory. It looked like a humiliating and dehumanizing defeat. But Jesus knew that it was a victory. What were his final words in John's gospel, in John 19, when he hung upon the cross? They weren't words of defeat. They were words of completion. He cried out, it is finished. The work is done. The story has reached its climax. The victory has been won. The hope is fulfilled. Of course, his disciples couldn't see it. That's why they scattered to their own homes. But then came Easter morning. And the women went to the tomb expecting to find a corpse, but discovered instead an angel in an empty tomb. And the angel announced to them, the one that you're looking for, Jesus of Nazareth, he is not here. He is risen. And though we read in Mark 16 that they were overcome with trembling and astonishment and great fear, they began to understand, along with all of Jesus' disciples, by virtue of this resurrection, what the cross really was, what it really accomplished. They began to see dimensions of the cross that were never going to be apparent outside of this great act in reversal of Jesus coming back from the grave. Here, as they came to see clearly and as they report to us in the New Testament, the great hope of Israel has been fulfilled. The enemy was defeated. God's people were liberated. And the new creation was inaugurated. The story has reached its climax. God has been faithful to his creation. Jesus says, I have overcome the world. And this is all packed into that phrase. So now let's do our three steps backwards through the remainder of verse 33. Because I have overcome the world, take heart. Take heart. Be of good courage. Be firm and resolute in the face of trial. Stand strong. Why? How? Even in, in these circumstances, Lord? Yes, Jesus says, take heart because I have overcome the world. Let's break this down into a few different ways to help us understand how we can take heart from Jesus' overcoming. The first thing to say is the end is assured. You all know the feeling of watching a movie for the second time. When you get to the scary parts, it's a little bit easier to make it through them because you know what's coming at the end. And there's a sense in which the resurrection does that for all of us. Jesus has overcome and in him the resurrection, the new age, the new creation has begun. It has been let loose, unleashed into this present age. And let me be clear, but by resurrection, we as Christians do not mean simply some metaphor for a spiritual experience that the apostles had. What we mean is that Jesus rose from the dead physically and bodily. And this resurrection, this physical bodily resurrection, affirms the creator God's commitment to his creation and to the renewal of all creation. 
Our great hope as Christians is not for some disembodied bliss, but it's for a new heavens and a new earth. It's for a creation that has been uh, infused with the grace and power of God and made new. It's for new bodies. And Jesus' resurrected body on this Easter morning is the first fruit of this new creation. The first bit of matter to be made new. As such, it is no longer subject to death and decay. Paul tells us in Romans 6 verse 9 that Jesus will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. Another way to say this is that resurrection is not resuscitation. Lazarus was resuscitated in John chapter 11 when Jesus spoke to him and he came out of his tomb. But he came back to life only to die again. Jesus was resurrected. The body that Jesus received on coming out of the tomb was a transformation of the body that went into the tomb in such a way that Jesus would never die again. It had continuity with his, his pre-resurrection body, but also discontinuity. And if we read the gospel accounts of the resurrection encounters, we see that continuity and discontinuity playing out. Jesus' resurrected body is the prototype. Jesus himself is the prototype of a new kind of humanity. He stands feet firmly planted on resurrection ground, on resurrection soil, and having passed through death and come out the other side, he will never traverse the other way again. And the trail that Jesus blazed through death is a trail that he has opened up for each of us to walk behind him in as we are united to him by faith. One day, in the words of Paul in Philippians 3, verse 21, Christ will transform our lowly bodies so that they will be like his glorious body. The new creation has begun. We know the end of the story. So we can stand with him right now, united to him on that resurrection ground. Come what may in the middle, we can take heart because we know the end. Also, our enemies have been defeated. Last summer, my family and I were uh, visiting Maine and staying in a friend's cabin. And we heard a noise in the middle of the night bumping through, bumping into things. We, we thought it was a mouse, but when it landed on my wife's leg at 4 a.m. and bit her, we realized it was a bat. It was a bit of an awful experience, and we were freaked out, to say the least, and we couldn't find the bat. We looked everywhere. We spent the next day, the entire day, which was Jameson, our son's birthday, which we now affectionately call in our family Happy Bat Day, we spent that entire day learning all that we could about bats and their bites and, of course, about rabies. And we ended up in the ER that night. Mandy spent a few hours there getting the first shot of prophylaxis. Maybe this wasn't wise, but that night we went back to the cabin to get some sleep. I'm not sure that was a wise move on my part to take our family back there. Could we sleep? Of course not, because the enemy was on the loose. I stayed up fully clothed and with a broom in my hands on the couch. At times, my 16-year-old daughter was with me as well, keeping watch, listening for any noise that we could, trying to find this bat. And I began to hear a rattle at about 1 in the morning. And sure enough, the bat had been trapped the previous night before when we shut the windows in between the screen and the window. And I heard it starting to flitter its ugly wings. It was like a victory and a celebration in our home at one, in that cabin at 1 a.m. The kids all came around to see the bat by the light of my, my, uh, my cell phone. And we rejoiced together. Uh, even better, the next morning the victory got greater as we called the Batmen to come and rescue uh, the bat. 
and, and then we put it in a Ziploc container and drove it to the CDC in Augusta, Maine to have it tested, where a couple of days later we learned that it didn't have rabies, much to our great relief. But that great bat, the great bat in our lives, the enemy that's fluttering around, is death itself. And it has been defeated and trapped. Not yet eradicated. We'll come to that momentarily. We still die. And unless Jesus returns before our death, we will die. But as Jesus says to Martha in John chapter 11 at the graveside of her brother Lazarus, who he is about to bring back to life, he says to her, whoever lives and believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? That's what he asks Martha. Even in the face of all kinds of enemies, tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, or sword, as Paul says in Romans 8, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. None of these can touch our union with Christ. None of these can rip us off of the resurrection ground on which we stand with him this morning. So take heart. Your enemy has been defeated. Not only do we know the end, not only has our enemy been defeated, but the crucified, conquering, and risen king is with us and for us in whatever circumstances that we face. And I know that sometimes this is hard for us to feel in our emotions. And it's even easier to forget in our thinking. But this is the plain truth of scripture. And this is why Jesus spends so much of the upper room discourse with his disciples as he comes to the end. We're looking at the end of that right now, but he spends a lot of that discourse teaching them about the Holy Spirit. He says, look, it's, it's better for you that I go away so that the Spirit, the Comforter, can come and be with you. Because in the Spirit, the resurrected Jesus is present with his people. The Spirit is the presence of God, the power of God, the person of God, deeply present in each of our lives, with us in every trial. I love the story of Elisha and his servant in 2 Kings 6. His servant wakes up one morning and looks out the window, probably making his morning coffee, and he sees the army of the Syrians have gathered around the village and they've trapped Elisha and his servant. They've come to take their lives. And he panics and he says, Elisha, what are we to do? And Elisha, the prophet, in his calm approach just says, Lord, open his eyes. And suddenly his servant opens his eyes and he can see the armies and chariots of the Lord gathered around the army of the Syrians. Greater were those who were with them than those who had come against them. And this is our situa situation as the people of God. We have the living Lord, the glorious King on our side as our helper. And what Paul says again in Romans 8 is, if God is for us, who can be against us? What should we be afraid of? So take heart. Take heart. Take heart, Jesus says. I have overcome the world. You know the end. The enemy's defeated. I am with you. What better king could we long for than this one? The one who speaks the truth to the powerful. The one who dignifies the powerless. The one who speaks to the man in the grave and he comes out alive. The one who enables the, the blind to see. The one who unbinds the man that no one could unbind in Mark chapter 5. No one was strong enough, Mark says. And yet Jesus speaks a word and the demons come out of him. 
Our king is the one who looks upon his people with compassion, who weeps with his friends, who makes his friends sinners and tax collectors and prostitutes, those whom the world has despised, those whom the world has said they are not worthy. Those are the ones that this king loves and cares for and comes near. What better king could we ask for? What better king could we long for than this king? One morning I went, or one evening I went in to put my youngest to bed and she was about four and, and she said to me, Dad, I don't know where this came from. She said, Dad, you can be king of the city and I can be queen of the world. And I thought, I don't know. she's got some leadership gifts, but believe me, none of us want her to be king of the world. None of us want to be the king of the world ourselves. Though we try, we try to take control, we try to rule over our lives. But there is no better king. There is no better savior. There is no better ruler than this risen king that came out of the grave on this morning. He is our king. He is with us. He is for us. So take heart. Take heart. Let's take our next, next step backwards. And this has been implicit all along, but we need to take heart because Jesus says, in the world you will have trouble or tribulation. The context will be trouble and trial. That's what you're facing. Jesus promises this. And this is important to hear because we can subtly start to believe that the victory of Jesus over the grave, over sin and death and the devil, means that we will be, or maybe that we should be spared from, from the difficulties of this life. But this has never been, and is still not today, the promise of the New Testament. And when we start to believe that false truth, that lie, and then we begin to experience trouble in our lives, our faith is suddenly resting on very, very shaky ground. Yes, Jesus has in fact overcome, but he has not yet eradicated the powers of evil and sin and even death itself from the world. The bats are still flying around, including the coronavirus and even the devil himself, who we're told in 1 Peter 5 prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. So we're told to be watchful, keep watch. And these will remain until Jesus returns to consummate the victory that we celebrate this day. And when he returns, he will eradicate sin and evil and death from this world so that there will be no more weeping, no more pain, no more suffering, no more death, no more pandemics, no more broken relationships, no more unfinished tasks, no more failed hopes. But everything will be well. Until that day, though, Jesus says, in the world you will have trouble. And the bats that are flying around can and do inflict pain and sorrow and heartache upon your lives. And we, because of that, we cry out to God and lament because of these things. That is our response of faith in the midst of our trials. But the reality is, and the affirmation of the New Testament is, is that none of these troubles and trials can touch the deepest and truest part of us. None of these troubles and trials can separate us, Paul says in Romans 8, from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. None of these troubles and trials can take us off of the resurrection ground on which we stand in the risen King Jesus. We are, again, more than conquerors. There is, of course, a particular trouble 
that Jesus' words are most specifically targeting here with his disciples. And that is the trouble that comes by aligning our lives with the resurrected king. He's just talked to his disciples in chapter 15 about the opposition that the world will have against them because of the opposition that it had against him. He actually calls it hatred. And the reality is that the world of sin and self-exaltation full of false gods, making false claims to give us false or counterfeit life, a life that never delivers, that always makes us more, puts us more in bondage. Those gods will fight tooth and nail for our allegiance to them. And walking in step with Jesus means walking out of step with the gods of this age. And that creates trouble. It can mean ridicule, slander, rejection. It can mean a loss of a promotion. It can mean the loss of our life. Just ask our brothers and sisters in the church around the globe that are in places where they're being persecuted for their Christian faith explicitly. I had the privilege many years ago of getting to share the gospel of Jesus with a young woman, a professional woman who had come to America from Iran. And as I got to speak to her for the first time, she'd never heard anything about the cross of Christ or about the resurrection of Christ. She was overwhelmed with tears at the beauty of the story. But she began to recount the fact that were she to believe in this Jesus and to go back home, she would be rejected by her parents and her siblings and her friends. And that story has been repeated thousands and thousands and thousands of times. In this world, you will have trouble. You align with this king, this king who threatens every other claim to rule and power, and you will face trouble. But there's also trouble in a more general sense, something that we don't need much convincing of in this moment in the world. As Job says, man is born to trouble as the sparks fly upward. The reality of this trouble is very clear to me today in a personal way. Exactly one year ago today, April 12th, 2019, my brother-in-law died at the age of 49 after a three-year ordeal with mantle cell lymphoma, leaving behind my sister as a widow and my five nieces and nephews fatherless. God shined brightly through their witness as faithful believers to the bitter end in the midst of this trial. They took heart, but this was trouble indeed. Trouble that took the life of a godly man in my family that I loved. And I know you all have your own stories of this kind of trouble. On Friday, we worked through the, the prayer requests that have been collected through our effort to contact all of you who call Park Street Church home. And the stories of difficulty were evident in nearly every request. Struggles with health. Struggles with jobs, struggles with finances, struggles in relationships, struggles with emotional well-being. It's all there. We all sometimes feel as if we hold more than we can bear. That's why we desperately need each other in the church. We need a family, the people of God, the body of Christ, to help us to take heart. It's not easy in the midst of trouble. Jesus never said it would be. In fact, he promised the opposite. He said, in this world, you will have trouble. So let's not be surprised, but let's take heart because he has overcome the world. Let's take our last backward step because at the beginning of this verse, there's an invitation to peace 
talking about trouble, we may think, well, then are we just left to a kind of difficult life of making it through one difficulty to another to another? And that's not at all, in fact, what Jesus promises. Yes, there will be trouble in the world. And yes, at times it will hurt quite deeply. But there is an invitation to peace. In the midst of all this trouble, in the midst of the pandemic, in the midst of cancer, in the midst of persecution, there is the possibility and the invitation to peace from the living King Jesus. This is how he says it in verse 33. I've said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. Where? Where do we find that peace? Not certainly in our circumstances, not in the world. Jesus says, in the world you will have trouble. In the day-to-day life, in your circumstances, there will be trouble. And in those moments where that trouble dissipates for a minute, it will certainly come back. That may sound like a grim picture, but it's an honest one. We all know that it's true. Where then are we to turn for peace? Where do we find peace? And Jesus says, it's in me, the one who has overcome. In me, you will have peace. And he says that peace is connected to the things that I've just spoken to you. These things I've said to you, he says, so that in me you might have peace. Well, what has he just said? Back in chapter 15, he said, you are to abide, abide in me as branches abide in the vine. That way of abiding is the way of obedience to his kingship and rule. He says to abide in me is to do what I say. It is to hear my words. It is to obey my commandments. That's how we belong to him. Through a life of yielding, through a life of surrender, through a life of obedience. Yielding to the victorious one. This is what we refer to in the church because of scripture as the life of repentance and faith. It's a life of turning, repentance, turning away from all other lords and a faith of clinging to and trusting and putting our lives into Jesus. When I was nine years old, my mom took up the practice of making gingerbread houses. And she would make big ones out of real gingerbread and then the little ones out of gingerbread cra- or out of graham crackers. And dutiful son and industrious son that I was, I would walk ab- around our neighborhood in Colorado Springs, door to door, knocking on the door and selling these gingerbread houses. Custom made with your name right on the front. Well, when my mom got to making them, we had very clear and distinct roles. Her role was to literally put the house together, do about 95% of the work, and then my and my siblings' role would be to occasionally get to decorate the top. We'd put a strip of icing on the roof line or put a few pieces of hard candy on the house, a few M&Ms around just to bring up the decorations a little bit. I offer that to you as a way of thinking about Jesus in our lives. For many of us, we want Jesus to be like me in that analogy. We want him to decorate the lives that we've already built on our own, to add a few finishing touches, a few extra decorations. But a little, having a little bit of Jesus is not having Jesus at all. It's just not. And that will never bring peace. It will never bring us to the inside of the overwhelming victory that we celebrate this morning. Instead, Jesus wants to take the role of my mom in the analogy. He wants to destroy the house you've built with your own hands and to build it anew on solid resurrection ground. He wants all of you. These are the terms of the living, crucified, yet living king. And these are gracious terms because Jesus knows that only when we surrender, Only when we hand over the whole of our lives to him will we we know the genuine peace that he has come to give.
He says, my peace I've come to give to you, not as the world gives do I give to you, but I give you lasting peace. Peace which Paul calls in, in Philipp, says in Philippians 4, peace that surpasses all understanding. And that peace comes as he takes our lives and builds them on solid ground. The storms will come, we read at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, the, the Luke inversion in Luke 6. But those who have built their house on the rock, they will stand through the storms. Those, however, who have built their house on the sand will be washed away in the trouble. In me, you will have peace. Christians often demonstrate this peace to the world in the face of death. And that testimony has been recounted time and time again throughout the history of the church. Francis Collins, who is the head of the NIH, knows Christ today because of an elder woman in great pain that he got particularly attached to as a young doctor doing the rounds in his mid-twenties. He was an atheist at the time. And in his words, despite being in great pain, this elderly woman came through all this with a remarkable peace and was very comfortable sharing the reasons for that with me, namely her faith in Jesus. Then one day she said to him, you have listened to me talk about my faith, but you never say anything. What do you believe? Collins says, and this is reported in the Atlantic last month, if you want to find the article, he says that that was the most important question that he had ever been asked. And it kicked off his journey that led him to Jesus. I began by saying that we are more alone right now than we ever have been. And those lingering questions about life, who am I? What am I? Where am I? What's my purpose? What's the reason for living? Those questions begin to come back to us in a deeper way. And I'd like to finish by asking you one of those questions, this question that the older woman asked Francis Collins that day long ago. What do you believe? And if you're not sure, then know that we would love to talk with you and engage you at Park Street Church to investigate this question in your life. We'd love to engage your heart and your mind, every part of you. Once we can be face to face again, I would love to meet you. And there are many others on our staff who would love to meet you. Many others within our community who would love to meet you and to share more with you about the hope that we are celebrating this day in Jesus. If you do believe that Jesus has risen from the dead, if you affirm this resurrection, if you believe his words, I have overcome the world, then rejoice this day loudly and clearly for Christ is risen. And he has overcome the world. And take heart, be of good courage, be resolute. Now in the midst of trouble. And do so with that great peace that only Jesus can give. In World War II, Langdon Gilkey and many other Westerners were held in an internment camp, in a, Chinese, a Japanese controlled internment camp in mainland China. After two and a half years in the camp, they were emaciated, whittled down to skin and bones and longing every day for rescue. And finally, the long-awaited rescue came. The news came. The war is over. And here is how he describes his state upon hearing the news. He says, I can still feel the shock and the thrill, the tremendous excitement mingled with incredulous belief when I heard this. Could it be true? Was the world that good? Was the war really over? The worries gone? A new life possible? With these thoughts, a wave of sheer joy surged through me. Three days later, as an Allied plane moved in to, the, to land near the camp, Gilkey writes, As it came steadily nearer, the elation of the assembled camp, 1,500 strong, mounted, and the people began to shout to themselves, to everyone around them, to the heavens above, their exultation. 
their exhilaration. At this point, the excitement was too great for any of us to contain. It surged up within us, a flood of joyful feelings sweeping aside all our restraints and making us its captives. It was pandemonium, the more so because everyone like myself was looking up and shouting at the plane and was unconscious of what he or anyone else was doing. Staid folk were embracing others to whom they had barely spoken for two years. Proper middle-aged Englishmen and women were shearing and swearing. Others were laughing hysterically or crying like babies. All were moved to an ecstasy of feeling that carried them quite out of their normal selves as the great plane banked over and circled the camp three times. This was our plane. It was sent here for us to tell us the war was over. The war is over. Jesus has overcome. By entering in, by taking up the cross, by rising again, the new age has begun. Every Christian around the globe this morning, in that great hope, take heart. Take heart. Take heart. In the midst of your troubles, Jesus has overcome the world. Hallelujah. Christ is risen. Amen.